So I have to admit that I'm um, I'm not a fan of of laugh tracks. Uh, you you know in in shows where um, you're watching like a sitcom, they're on all sitcoms, and uh, you're watching them and. And then there's just people laughing in the background. I, I don't care whether it's real or fake, live studio audience or program in there. I just I'm not a fan. I don't usually watch shows with laugh tracks. I find it distracting. I like a good, you know, clean comedy, something like Parks and Rec, where there's no laugh track. But I, I, two exceptions. I will. I still watch Seinfeld and I'll still watch Mash, and they have laugh tracks, and I like those. But but otherwise, not usually a big fan. But I've I've realized something in isolation. Um, comedy doesn't work unless there's people there to enjoy it, to laugh at it. It's why comedians don't um, uh, do their stand-up special on Netflix to an empty room. Because even if we're watching it from our own home, it's only funny because you know people are actually enjoying it in the moment. There's an energy. There's something that happens when we all gather together in a, in a space. In fact, we know from uh, from comedy that comedy clubs will jam people in the room together. And that's why you have to sit so close in comedy clubs. Because if you even spread out, if people are spread out in a room, things will appear less funny. There's something energetic about hearing the other person laugh that inspires inspires you to laugh. And, and I think that's really a metaphor for what it feels like for us to be together in a space, to, to share an experience together. And, and we can't do that right now, not, not in the way that we want. And I just want to say that it's okay to grieve that loss. I, I don't think online church is the future of the church. I, I think it's a fine addition a fine substitution, better than nothing, but it's not the future. There's something that happens. There's an energy that happens when we gather in a space. And so until we get it back, I may or may not add uh, a laugh track or two to my sermons to give you that experience. Okay, that, it wasn't that funny. Yeah, that's, that's more our speed, don't you think? Nice little quiet chuckle. Uh, today we start a, a, a two-week series called Loners, and we're going to look at some characters in the Bible that found themselves uh, isolated and set apart, uh, alone, and, and really kind of wanted to give up. And um, even, but even in the midst of their doubts, they held on to faith. They found a way to keep going. And so we're going to look at those. And, and my hope is, is that where you find yourself as you uh, shelter in place and maybe at times feel alone or overwhelmed, that you might find through their stories a way to keep your faith as well. Today we're going to start with the, the prophet Elijah. And Elijah was a prophet and his story can be found in the book of First Kings. So the prophet's role, like Elijah, was, was really... Um, a difficult one. One of his primary roles as a prophet was to to hold the kings accountable. It's a sense that um, the the prophets uh, kind of was God's version of of checks and balances. That that by having the prophet and the king and judges, and it was kind of a checks and balances like we're used to. But the problem being that that during Elijah's time and during a lot of other prophets, uh, the kings didn't always listen. To the prophets. And the king didn't always listen uh, 
to Elijah. And, and, and this king in particular that was during the time of Elijah was deeply influenced by other religions and uh, including his wife Jezebel who was a, a very uh, a devout worshiper of Baal influenced him quite a bit and, and so he doesn't listen to Elijah which means he was running the country unchecked. No system of accountability, um, no way to hear what God would have him say or do. So we're going to look at how Elijah holds up being someone who is told to speak, but really there's no one who will listen. So you can find the passage in 1 Kings uh, 19, and the, the text will be uh, on the screen as well. So 1 Kings 19, starting with verse 1, here's what it says. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. This story builds, the story we're looking at today builds off of the story that just happened moments before. Um, and to really understand this story, you got to understand the one before. And it's a popular story. If you're familiar with uh, Elijah's story at all, you'll, you'll be familiar with it. But if not, I'll tell you. Uh, Elijah, this story right before the one we're looking at uh, is one of the most dramatic, intense, beautiful standoffs in confrontations in all of the while, maybe in all of ancient literature. I mean, this is a, an intense confrontation in the story of First Kings. He's a prophet, and, and, and as a prophet of the God of Israel, he's the prophet of God of Israel, Yahweh. And, and there are, at this meeting, a bunch of prophets of the God of, of Baal, uh, this ancient deity. And, 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 and Elijah is outnumbered. He's there by himself, representing the God of Israel, Yahweh. And, and, and so Elijah challenges them to a duel. He's outnumbered, he's outmatched, but he challenges them to a duel because he knows that his God is real and ultimately more powerful. So he sets up the sacrifice. He builds an altar and he puts a, a sacrifice on it. And then he says to the prophets, he says, all right, here's the challenge. You tell your God to shoot down fire and light this sacrifice, blow it up. And, they, and, and, if, and if you do, then we'll worship your God. And, and if you can't, then I'll ask my God. And whoever's God shows up, that's the, that'll be the true God. And so they, uh, they agree to it and they go first and they're praying and they're cutting themselves, which was a part of their uh, uh, religious practice to get their gods to do what they wanted them to do. And so they're hurting themselves and they're wailing and they're running, you know, and nothing happens. And Baal's not particularly nice about it. He says in 1 Kings 18, 27, he says, Shout louder! Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is, he's just in deep thought, or he's busy, or he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Nothing happens. So it's Elijah's turn. And to show off, he, he knows God's going to show up. I don't know how he knows, but he knows God's going to show off. So, uh, show up. so to show off, he, he douses the sacrifice in water as a way of saying, you know what? My God can even to light this entirely soaked sacrifice on fire. And, and he calls on the God of Israel and the God of Israel shows up as fire and he comes shooting down lightning from space and everyone saw it and it, and it lights up and, and they all believe. All the people who are watching see it and they believe. And then Elijah tells the people to kill all of the false prophets and they do and it's a massacre and it's bloody and it's intense and it's dramatic and it's epic and it's loud. And it would, and many would say that this is the, the climax of Elijah's story. In a lot of ways, it's the ideal prophet narrative. It's, it's, it's the thing that the prophet would, would want the most. 
You know, the prophets, they had it hard. They, they say things that, that they don't want to say to people who don't want to hear it. And more often than not, it doesn't change anything. There's, there's not a single prophet who wanted to be a prophet. It was a hard, lonely job where you're hated and you're cast down and you're looked down and, and nobody likes you. All of the prophets, in, in their at least their lowest moments, would have imagined a scene like Elijah's uh, as, a, as a complete victory. Like if only God would just show up and show everyone that this God is real, that this God means business, that, that you have to get it right, that you've got it. If only, like this is the ideal prophet narrative. They would dream of a chance to do what Elijah did. That's the prophet's dream. And I say that because we're going to look at what happens next. When in your, at least your lowest moment where you, you finally have the confrontation you dreamed of and you were proven right in that moment, what does it look like afterwards? When you finally feel like you've won. We're gonna look at the prophet uh, and see what happens. So chapter 19, verse one, here's what it says. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow, I do not make your life like one of them. For some reason, she sends a messenger to tell him that she's going to kill him um, instead of just sending someone to kill him. But, but she sets it up and she says, because you've killed the prophets of my God, I'm going to make sure that you end up dead. Verse 3, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. This is what happens when you get uh, that prophetic moment that you've been longing for, when you finally get to face your enemies and set them straight, you know, where you get to just wipe them off the face of the earth. I just get this over with. And you get to prove to them just how powerful your God is. The conflict then escalates. It gets even harder for Elijah. He runs for his life. And where does he go? Next verse. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there. So just a side note, he's, he's gone into Judah. This is outside of Jezebel's uh, reign. This is, this is her husband Ahab did, wasn't king over Judah. So now he's left uh, Israel and gone into Judah. Um, and so he's really kind of safe. He's, he's kind of left the country, fled the country to be safe. Uh, and he leaves his servant in Beersheba. Uh, but he, even though he's now in another country, he doesn't stop there. He, he keeps going. Verse 4. He says, while he himself, he left his servant while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. So he leaves his servant in Beersheba and, and he heads out into the wilderness to be alone. He's out there by himself. And instead of kind of feeling good or victorious, this is what happens. He came to a broom bush, a desert type plant, and he sat down under it and he prayed that he might die. He says, I have had enough, Lord. He said, take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. He's ready to die. He says, I'm no better than my ancestors. 
I'm no better than the prophets who came before me or the ones who will come after me. I tell people about you, God, and they don't want to listen and nothing changes. Even when we win, we don't really win. And Elijah reaches his breaking point. Have you ever reached your breaking point? Have you ever felt completely and utterly broken? Have you reached a point where, where you just didn't know if it could get any better? I have. Um, since this pandemic, I think I've reached it weekly, um, maybe twice a week. Uh, once this week, I woke up and I, I said to Alyssa, I just, I, I can't do today. I, I can't, I can't do today. And, and so I went back to bed and I just, I just couldn't do it. Too many things to do, too little time to get them done, too many distractions. Uh, and, and I'm wondering the whole time whether it's even making a difference. And I just couldn't do it. And I'm wondering if you've reached that place before where you just didn't see the point anymore. If you have, then you can re relate, hopefully, to what Elijah does next. Verse 5, then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. He took a nap. Can I just say that there is something holy about naps? And, and sometimes, you know, sometimes we need a miracle in our lives. We need God to show up in this lightning blazing way in powerful ways. But honestly, sometimes we just need a nap. Elijah needed a nap. All at once, then an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. Now, they say here angel, and that's unfortunate. In the Hebrew and in the Greek, angel uh, means messenger. Um, oftentimes they translate it as angel when they're referring to a messenger of the Lord, but they're giving the story away. At this point, we've heard of a messenger. He was a messenger from Jezebel. And if you we were reading this in the Hebrew, you would have read, he sleep, he fell asleep, and then a messenger came up to him and woke him up. Well, that would create a little bit of tension in the story because the only other messenger we've heard of is, is from his enemy. And you're like, what's going to happen? But here's what happens. Um, verse six, he looked around and there by his head was some baked bread over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and then he laid down again. He, he didn't need a miracle at this point. He, he needed something as practical as food. And I have to admit, if you're reaching a breaking point, the change you need might be as simple as that. It might mean getting something healthy to eat, going on a walk, getting up earlier to have time to, to do devotions. It might mean fasting from Facebook or Netflix or news. For me, it meant leaving the house. I, I crawled out of bed. I took a shower. I got my stuff. I left the house like I was going to, to work. And I got in my car and I pulled up to a park and I turned on my hotspot on my phone and I worked from the truck uh, right there in the park. And, and that is exactly what I needed. So small, so practical, and it changed my week. Nothing magical about it. Nothing even that supernatural. It, that's what Elijah needed. He needed a nap and a snack. Verse 7. So the angel of the Lord, this time we're told where the messenger comes from. It's the messenger of the Lord. Uh, messenger of God. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said again. He wakes him up again. He says, get up for the journey is too much for you. Well, Elijah knew that already. He'd been telling God, this is too much for me. I can't do this anymore. He says, eat because the journey ahead of you is too much for you. So we got up and ate. And I, I love this because I kind of imagine this scene. Elijah's just sick 
with desperation and he's sleeping and they, this this messenger keeps coming and waking him up and telling him to eat and then he sleeps and then he wakes him up and tells him to eat some more and this is kind of the rhythm. It reminds me of what it's like to sleep in the hospital. I have a friend who reached out to me this week and um, had told me how happy he was to get to go home um, because at the hospital, they just kept coming back and waking him up and giving him what he needed and that's that's what he needed. That's what was supposed to happen. He told He told me what it was like to be served by the by the medical professionals in the hospital. It, it changed him. It, it, it helped him. Well, he reached out to his pastor friend for the first time in a year. He told me about how the doctor would come in and smile and how God just brought, he, you know, he called them angels is what he called them. Messengers from God. He brought just the right medical professionals into the room and he he said they were smart. He said one guy, this doctor, was the smartest person he's ever been in the same room with. The smartest person he's ever been in the same room with. And, and, and how they were smart and kind and honest. And, and what's interesting about that is, as he was describing these medical professionals, these doctors and nurses, I was thinking to myself, oh, that sounds like someone I know. I don't know if you know this, but there's a lot of people in our community who are medical professionals doctors, nurses, specialists. And as he was describing them, it sounded like a lot of you. It, it probably wasn't, given what he was, you know, his situation where he was being treated and stuff. I don't think it was any of you, but it could have been. Uh, the way that you, I know, the way that you bring in, the presence you bring into a room, the, the kindness, the smiles, uh, the intelligence. And so I just want to say, if that's you and you're listening, you're one of our one of our you know, first responders um, serving in a variety of ways, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being a messenger, to bringing hope into him, even when you have bad news, because these, these doctors had really bad news for my friend, really bad news. But the way in which they handled it changed his life. It opened up his door to be in relationship with people again. The other thing I want to say is this, especially to our medical professionals or anyone who's feeling overworked or underappreciated. Sometimes God uses you as the messenger, but sometimes you're going to find yourself as Elijah and you're tired. And you know what? You're going to need a nap and a snack. And I don't want you to forget that. Sometimes and, and on a regular basis, you're only human you got to give yourself a break. you got to let someone else be that messenger. you got to let someone else take care of you, to, to reach out and, and to give you what you need. And whether that's a break or whether that's a, a snack or whether that's just a chance to sit in the car alone, whatever it is, you have to. Going on, Elijah did, um, uh, and, and here's what happens. So he, he ate the food. Strengthened by the food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. 40 days and nights. 40, 40 is a significant number in the Bible. It's, it's used over and over again. The Israelites wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, during the flood, it rained for 40 days. Moses went up to the mountain, uh, the same mountain that, that, that Elijah just is headed towards, uh, and spent 40 days up there. Goliath came out and was tempted the Israelites for 40 days before David challenged him. Jonah visited Nineveh and warned them of God's wrath. 
uh, in 40 days to come. Uh, Elijah spent these 40 days in the wilderness traveling to the mountain that Moses uh, met God on. Jesus fasted and prayed for 40 days in the wilderness. And then Jesus, when he rose again, he wandered around Israel for 40 days, showing himself and proclaiming his victory over death. And then every year, we just finished it, we celebrate 40 days journey called Lent. And I was curious once, why 40? What's the significance of 40? I'm not a big numbers guy, but I was curious. Why 40? It shows up a lot. It shows up in our life during the period of Lent. And so I emailed my, my, one of my professors, Thomas Dozman, and he replied, this was a number of years ago when I was in seminary, and he said this. So his quote, uh, the number 40 may represent um, the time span of a generation. The 40 years in the wilderness is one generation, so the wilderness generation, or in a more abstract way of thinking, one cycle. The abstract meaning gets applied to Elijah in the desert, Moses on the mountain in our calendar, and so forth. When you see uh, 40 days in the Bible, it's referring to what happens in 40 years. In 40 years during the wilderness, the, the people in charge would no longer be in charge. They would, they would live and die or, or grow very old, and new leaders would rise up. And that's what was happening in the wilderness generation. God said, no, we need a new leadership. You're going to wander for 40 years until a new generation comes and leads. And, and think of it like this. In 40 years, we won't have the same president. Um, in fact, he would, he would be 113 years old if he was still around. The, the Congress would not be the same. Even if career politicians, many of them being much older, probably won't even be around. I'll be very old in 40 years, um, uh, but hopefully, hopefully uh, still around. It's hard to say. I'll be in my 80s, I think. Um, or, or close to it, just about 80. Um, but but if, the, if the average age of Congress, just think of it this way, if the adri- average age of Congress remains the same at 58, and um, uh, in 40 years, the people, the, average, the people who are in Congress would, would be right now 18. That's what happens in a 40-year period. And, and, and so in 40 years, there'll be a new generation with new ideas and new things. What is old will be gone and what is new will arrive. And when, when God does something in 40 days, here's what God is hoping to accomplish. God wants to condense that 40-year cycle where the old grows old and dies and the new rises up. In 40 days, God wants to accomplish that same thing, that same cycle of new life, the old gone, the new comes. You, you, you stop thinking like a 58-year-old and you start thinking like an 18-year-old again. Fun fact, the word quarantine comes from the Italian word that means literally 40 days. Elijah is traveling for 40 days, which means something new is about to happen. And for someone who has shot fire down from heaven, it's hard to imagine just how more impressive uh, it could get. So verse 9 says this. So he went into a cave and spent the night. He's on the same mountain that, that Moses met God. He, he might even be in the very same spot, a small cave, where Moses hid and watched God pass by. He's, he's come to this holy place to meet God, and he, he needs an audience with God. And here's what happens. And the word of the Lord came to him. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? God shows up and asks, What's going on? He replied, I've been zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me. He's so frustrated 
and tired and alone. So the Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by, just like Moses. Then the great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. God was not in the wind or the earthquake or even the fire. Elijah, the one who who got God to shoot down fire from heaven, doesn't even find God in the fire. Going on, it says this, and after the fire, came a gentle whisper. One commentator said that a literal translation in the Hebrew would simply be the sound of silence, which is a great song by Simon and Garfunkel, by the way. God wasn't in the loud noises or the shocking reveals, but in the absence of it all, in the sound that's left when there is no sound anymore. Silence. God tells Elijah what would happen. Skip to verse 15. The Lord said to him, Go back the way you came and go to the desert Damascus. When you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimush, uh, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel Molono, to succeed you as prophet. Here's what's going to happen to fix Elijah's problems. Eventually, there would be a new king. And this king wouldn't try to hunt him down and kill him. And eventually, there would be a new prophet, which means he'd be able to retire. He's tired. And he wants to be able to call it a day to pass the baton to someone else. Both are great solutions for Elijah's problems. But neither of them are going to happen overnight. Neither of them is going to be like fire coming down from heaven. It won't be an earthquake or, or that shakes the whole world. And it's not going to be a fire that shows people who God is. And it won't be the strong winds of change. It will be slow and deliberate. And it will happen over the course of history. A new king eventually. A new prophet eventually, but only after he's been trained. God would work slowly through history to bring about the change Elijah needed and And God is still working slowly through history to bring about change. Because this kind of change lasts. And and the showy fire from heaven change comes and goes, impresses in the moment, but has limited lasting results. If you feel alone, if you feel distraught or overwhelmed, there's two things we can learn from Elijah. First one is this, you might need something as practical as a nap and a snack. That's what's going to get you through today. A nap, a healthy food, going on a walk, taking time alone, calling a friend so you're not alone. Getting by today will happen through small practical changes. That's how you get through today. The second one is this, the big changes that we long for aren't going to come like an earthquake or blazing fire, they're going to be slow, and they're probably going to be a lot slower than you want. And because they will happen slowly, that's all the more reason for us to find those little practical things that we need to get through the next day. Here's the thing. Small changes get us to the next day. 
big changes happen as God works through the course of history. Don't get those confused. The small things that you've been putting off, we get these backwards. We're like, the small things I put off, the big things I want to change today. No, the small things that you've been putting off, you know, I'm going to, I'll start exercising next, you know, next week, next year. I'll, I'll start doing daily devotions with God some other time. These small things, they're not going to make that big of a difference. I don't need to get up and, you know, put pants on today. I'm just working from home. No, the small things that you can do today can make a huge change and get you through to the next day. But those big things that you're beating yourself up about, those big ideas and hopes and dreams that you wish were different in the world, that you wish were different in your life, those big things that you keep beating yourself up, those are the ones you've got to put off, that you've got to give yourself time. You've got to be willing to wait. Give God and yourself time to accomplish them. So here's the thing, and I want you to hear this. Act on the small things. Wait on the big ones. Act on the small things, wait on the big ones. And in everything, trust God. Now I know you're tired and you're worn out and and I know God wants to bring to you something to eat. Wake you up and say, hey, this journey ahead is gonna be hard, so eat something. You're gonna need some nourishment. So we wanna do that now. This is how Jesus was feeding his disciples. He offered to them bread and juice. He, He took the bread and he broke it and he offered it to his disciples and he, and he took the cup and he offered it to them and as, as a life source, as a way of connecting us to God's uh, very presence in our lives, the person of Jesus Christ who came and met us at our weakest moment and loved us all the same. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we ask that your Holy Spirit would fall on us wherever we are and fall on these gifts of bread and juice. Make them be for us the very body and blood of Jesus Christ. In your name, amen. Take, eat.